this episode, Justice League International number 14, cover dated June 1988. Hello. And welcome to the 14th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irredeemable Shag, and I'm your host. But guess what? I brought along a friend. In fact, each episode, I invite a different guest host to help me tackle an issue of JLI. Today, my co-host is the man Barry White used to call for vocal tips. Folks, please help me welcome to the embassy, Mr. Zoom Yukonori. Thanks for being here, Zoom. How you doing, buddy? You're talking out loud again to yourself, sir. <laughs> Oh, sneak peek of what's coming, folks. That's right. One of everyone's favorite characters is going to show up this issue. I cannot wait. Uh, all jokes aside, thank you so much for being here, Zoom. I'm really excited. Folks, if you don't know, Zoom has just recently joined the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He's already a legend in the uh, the podcasting world just for this voice that we all hate because it's so gorgeous and silky, and you're an amazing artist as well. Sir, how you doing? You're too kind, sir. You're too kind. I'm doing fine, doing well. It is being my pleasure here to be. <laughs> And you, sir, how are you? Well, I just got done... Well, I shouldn't say I got done moving. I'm I'm still technically unpacking. I, I know where my Justice League comics are, my Firestorm comics, but that's about it. You know, everyone's sleeping under the roof, so that's something. Yes, and at least you, you know where things are, or at least the most important things are. Yeah, they're all in boxes. That's where... And where are your who's who, sir? Oh, I did unpack the who's who, and that was more by accident than anything else. I opened a box, was looking for something else, and found those. <laughs> Happy to have them. So are we all. They sit on my shelf like reference material, you know, like you'd keep a dictionary back in the old days, because that's just how important they are to me. Yes, that's right. I used to have one of those dictionaries, the ones that were about the size of an old 1980s Apple computer. <laughs> My last dictionary ended up as a monitor stand for the longest time because I needed my monitor to be up about four inches. <laughs> you know what? Next time I need a monitor stand, I could use the new JLI Omnibus because that thing's going to be like, I don't know, 12 inches thick. That'd be great. But Oh, you'd never do that, sir. Of course not. Well, at least I'd know where to find it all. <laughs> well, Zoom, I got to say, I am really excited about this issue because there, uh, there's going to be some, some not so positive stuff to say, but there's some pretty landmark things that happen in this issue that are going to continue to be pretty important throughout the JLI's history going forward, and I'm excited about that. Indeed. Let us partake in that, sir. <laughs> All right, well, before we get too much further, we need to take a moment to thank our sponsor. Folks, this episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode, we select a collected edition to briefly discuss from the InStockTrades library. Usually, it's going to be tied to that month's JLI issue in some way, shape, or form. Now, my pick this time, and stick with me for a minute. You might be like, huh? What does that have to do with JLI? My pick is Fables. Deluxe Edition Hardcover Volume 1. Yeah, I'm talking about Bill Willingham's acclaimed series. That's right, Eisner Award-winning series Fables. Now, the deluxe hardcover, the one I'm pimping here, collects issues 1 through 10. And uh, the pencilers were Leia Medina and Mark Buckingham, but more importantly, the inker was Steve Lealoha. Ah, which you're going to hear a lot more about this episode. Now, some interesting facts about Steve Lealoha on, this, on the Fable series. In this collection, the first 10 issues, he inked 9 of the 10 issues included in this volume. And if you really look 
look at Fables as a whole, he inked over a hundred issues of Fables. That's crazy! In 2007 and 2009, they won the Eisner Comic Award for Best Penciler Inker Team with Mark Buckingham and Mark Lealoha. That's crazy! Wow! So impressive. So, if you've never read Fables, I, I'm shocked. You really should. It's, it's an amazing series. If you have read Fables, well, you don't bust it out and, and appreciate some Steve Lealoha stuff. The page count for this edition is 264 pages, full color, normally retails for $29.99. Right now, you can get in stock trades for 45% off for only $16.49. That's a heck of a deal for 10 issues of Fables Ooh, and a big hardcover. Very nice. It is indeed. I, you know, I think I think some people have actually read Fables. It's just that they were watching Once Upon a Time on ABC, oh, not realizing goodness. it. That is, uh, that's a heartbreaking story. I mean, knowing that ABC had optioned Fables as a series, and then Disney and DC don't get along, and this whole thing. Oh my gosh, such, such a pain for that. Now, Zoom, the guest is not required to bring an in-stock trades recommendation, but did you happen to? I did. I didn't know that. Jeez, I could have saved so much time. <laughs> well, what you got, buddy? I, too, have a JLI-appropriate in-stock trades recommendation. Tiger and Bunny Graphic Novel Volume 1. What? Yes, I know. Wait for it, sir. I'm not a patient man. I understand, but please just wait. You'll 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 get it in a moment. I'm tapping my foot. I am talking about Tiger and Bunny, the international smash hit anime that was produced by Sunrise. It has made its official manga debut in the U.S., published by Viz, with art by Sakakibara Mizuki and Nishida Masafumi and characters that are designed by Katsura Masakazu. This official tie-in with the anime series is sure to be an immediate bestseller. Now, this book takes place in a world where a bizarre genetic mutation has begun to give certain individuals superpowers. Such a person is referred to as a next, as in the next stage of evolution. And these next become supervillains and superheroes. Now, the twist in this series is that the heroes are actually employees of private companies, and they have their superheroic exploits filmed for a very popular reality show called Heroes TV, where they actually compete with each other for points based on whether they stop a criminal or save people, things like that. And the heroes also have corporate sponsors as well, so their uniforms have all these brand logos on them, kind of like Greg Kinnear's Captain Amazing in the Mystery Men movie. Mm -hmm. Now, this is essentially to fund the costs of the destruction caused by their superheroic battles, which, of course, the private corporations want to minimize. Mm -hmm. So in Volume 1, veteran hero Wild Tiger has years of experience fighting crime, but his ratings have been slipping because he's more concerned with uh, catching bad guys than making sure that the corporate sponsor's logo actually shows up on camera. But under orders from his new employer, Wild Tiger finds himself forced to team up with a younger, more photogenic newcomer, Barnaby Brooks Jr., a.k.a. Bunny, a next with similar powers, but he's also a rookie with an attitude. Oh, and Barnaby didn't name himself Bunny. <laughs> okay. So, no. That's actually what White Tiger calls him. Overcoming their differences will be at least as difficult for this mismatched duo as taking down superpowered bad guys. It's 168 gorgeous black and white pages. Standard retail price is $9.99. In stock's trade price is $6.99. So you save 30%. And of course, the first nine volumes of this series are available for that same price of $6.99 each from In Stock Trades. Now, what does this have to do with JLI? I will tell you. Like JLI, Tiger and Bunny is an entertaining comic that truly captures the American superhero mythos and adds quite a bit of that real-world-inspired office humor that JLI has. Mm. And if you go to any anime convention, you will find Tiger and Bunny to be one of the most popular properties out there, and I'm sure the manga version would be the hit of your local manga con. Oh! Oh my gosh! Uh, you went all that way just for that joke? Wow! 
That is dedication, sir. I, I, I applaud you. I really do. But man, that's a groaner. <laughs> Brilliant. But that one hurts. Oh my gosh. <laughs> now, I delivered the pain, sir. Oh, you did. Now, I got to tell you, I'm not really a manga or anime guy. My, my stepson is. I, I, he can't read it fast enough. But that does sound like one that would actually get my attention. It sounds really fun. Well, you should you should at least watch the anime. But the book the book pretty much covers the story beat by beat. Hmm. Okay. Very cool. I might have to check that out. I love, I love the name Tiger and Bunny. It just sounds too funny. Huh. Awesome. For that and all your other trade paperback needs, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, folks, we want to hear from you guys. We want to make this in, as interactive as possible. We want to hear your feedback. We want to hear why you like Tiger and Bunny. We want to hear why you like Just League International. All those things. Please hit us up on the social medias. You can use either our hashtag, which is PoundFWPodcast, or you can find us on Twitter at JLI Podcast. We're also on Facebook with Justice League International Blah Ha Ha Podcast. Because the fact is, this podcast is all about celebrating the JLI and building a community of online fans together. Since the start of this podcast, I have met so many people that I had no idea were out there that are JLI fans, and they've gotten to know each other. There's a lot of conversations going on between those folks. It's It's been a wonderful experience. We want to keep it growing. So please, find us on social media. All right, up next is the part of the podcast where I usually take a nap, because quite frankly, I don't care about hearing the guests. But because Zoom's voice is so damn sexy, I'm actually looking forward to hearing this. So, Mr. Zoom, would you please tell the folks at home, what is your personal origin story with the JLI? How did you discover the book, and how or why did you fall in love with it? Well, I've been a longtime Justice League fan since 1973 with the Super Friends program, and I discovered the Justice League comic book in early 1974. I actually go into this comic book fandom origin in my first episode of the Done in One Wonders podcast Wonder Show, coming soon to the Fire and Water podcast. Network. So I'm just going to skip ahead. Uh, Skillfully plugged, by the way. Thank you, sir. I I will admit that I was not happy with the shift to the Detroit League era. Now, don't get me wrong. It's not that that series was bad in any way. It was was just different. And and I missed the the League from the Bronze Age that I had read in my youth. And then the Legends series came along, and and I saw a new post-crisis Justice League form at the end of that miniseries, and I thought this new team would be hearkening back to the League of the Silver and Bronze Age daring do that I enjoyed. And then I received the first issue of <laughs> Justice League number one. And I, I'm sorry, sir, but I actually did not like it. Um, <gasps> no, at first. <laughs> so it's really been nice talking to you. Um, <laughs> have a good evening, folks. That's the show. <laughs> well, I thought you liked listening to my silky baritone. <laughs> I'll just put on that podcast episode about the other JLA. <laughs> <laughs> I was living in the UK at the time, and my uncle was in the US, and he was sending me care packages of comic books, essentially copies of the books that he was buying and reading at the time. And, and he kept sending me the Justice League book, and I would try to read it. Um, and for some reason, it just wasn't clicking with me. And I will explain why in a little bit, but, but then I got to the one punch issue, number five. Ah. And I did find that whole one punch routine to be quite witty. I promise not to say one punch anymore. I'm telling you, man, there's a limit to how much I'm willing to take (laughs) as an editor. (laughs) But anyway, back to the one punch (laughs) issue. (laughs) I did find that issue, number five, that issue number five, to be quite witty, I'll admit. But I still didn't really get on board with this new league until I got to Justice League International number eight, Ah, which was the moving day episode. And I suddenly realized what the creators were trying to do. So I reread the the earlier issues. And and then I I realized that, at least in my view, the creators were still trying to find their footing a bit. They were trying to balance heroic action with comedy. And I think that's why it wasn't clicking with me. And with issue eight, they decided to lean more toward 
comedy, and at that point, I finally accepted I was not going to find any semblance of my bygone era of Justice League in this series anymore, so I just decided to let that go and enjoy the ride. Issue 8 seems to be a turning point for a lot of people. It really, really does. When we did the episode on it, we certainly celebrated how that issue began to turn the book and turn the fans, so yeah. I'm glad to hear that was the one that did it. That's awesome. It it was, indeed, And, and then I was happy to receive that every month from my uncle. And how cool is that that your uncle would send you those? I mean, wow. That's yeah. That's commitment to corrupting the youth. That's very impressive. Well, there's a story behind that, too, that I'll get into on the Done in One Wonders podcast wonder show. <laughs> You're as bad as uh, Michael Bailey plugging his shows over and over. All right. Oh. That's, not, that's a compliment. Don't worry. So who are your favorite <laughs> JLI characters? Now, try to narrow it down to like maybe one to three here if you could. I will do two, sir. Okay. I believe one of the reasons the Justice League comic book did not initially click with me back in 1986 and 1987 was basically the fact that most of the Justice League characters seem to be acting out of character. Hmm. You know, the, the Blue Beetle in the DC Blue Beetle series and Legends was much different than the Blue Beetle in Justice League. Same with Captain Adam in Justice League versus his series. Even Batman was a very different character than the one I was reading in Batman and Detective Comics at the time. It was a bit jarring. It was like, who are these people? The only character that seemed to be the closest to the same character outside of JLI personality-wise, at least to me, was Black Canary. So she's one of my favorites in that regard. She kind of grounded the book for me. Okay. Also, the way Captain Marvel was portrayed in uh, Justice League, it was much, much better than that Shazam miniseries that was being published at the time by Roy Thomas. And, And nothing against Roy Thomas, but I just like the the characterization of Captain Marvel in Justice League International much better. So he's he's also a favorite of mine. In fact, uh, I found this version to be my favorite characterization of of the Captain until the Jerry Ordway Power of Shazam series, which to me has not yet been surpassed. I think a lot of people would agree with you there, actually, on, on both of those cases. Jeff Smith comes very close, I'll admit. That is a fun miniseries. It absolutely is. Now, Black mm. Canary, though, I, I don't know if everyone would agree with you with Black Canary. A lot, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about how she was out of character as just a, a too harsh feminist type character uh, in the series as, as compared to how she was outside the series. But either way. Well, uh, you know, I've read a lot of those Green Arrow Black Canary stories in the 70s. And mm-hmm. She seemed to be a very, not I wouldn't say hot-headed, but she was very firm and she would get angry at, at Oliver Queen a lot for his chauvinistic platitudes. And, and of course, they were richly deserved. Absolutely. Well, I'm glad to hear that there was some carry through there because, I mean, she's a great character. I love her in the Justice League books. I love the personality mm-hmm. they gave her, the way they portrayed her. And it's nice to hear that it is a little more consistent yeah. than some people have said. Yeah, well, it's not exact, but it's it's very, very close. It was close enough to me that I actually recognized who she was. Well, being that you're big fans of Black Canary and Captain Marvel in the in the Justice League, you must have loved this issue, because both are gone by now. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, they make a big point in this issue of saying Black Canary's missing, and eh, we're not going to see her yes. again in this book, sadly. That's right, and I do get to that. Well, thank you for entertaining us with those silky, silky, dulcet tones, even though they're, if you were spewing a bunch of nonsense about the Justice League Detroit not being up to snuff. Anyway, uh, I think what we're going to do, folks, is we're going to move on to the next segment, which I like to call... Monitor Duty. And this is where we talk about comics that were on the shelf the same month as this issue of Justice League featuring JLI members. Justice League International was on sale on February 9th, 1988, thanks to Mike's Amazing World of Comics for that information. So, other titles featuring JLI members on the sale in February 1988, folks. Now, if we look at just the team as a whole, one of the comics that was on the shelf was Suicide Squad number 13 by John Ostrander and Luke McDonald. This is the comic... Wait, wait, sir. Don't don't you mean Suicide Squad number 10? (laughs) 
from the crossover telling you what issue to go read? Yes, I, I would mean that if you were to believe the next issue boxes. But I have uh, my this, theories about that, sir. We might go into it later. Oh, fantastic. I look forward to hearing it. Not not really. I'm just humoring you. But um, <laughs> now we covered Suicide Squad number 13 uh, last month on this podcast with Aaron for the JLI Suicide Squad crossover, but it's just interesting it came out the following month. So anyway, for more information on Suicide Squad, check out the Task Force X podcast with Aaron Head Moss, past guest of the show. Also on the shelves was Martian Manhunter number 2 by J.M.D. Mateus and Mark Badger. And this uh, this is the miniseries featuring the Manhunter from Mars. It continues. In this issue, the JLI face off against Horonomir. Oh, so that's how you pronounce it. I always wondered. I am not somebody that you should ask how to pronounce things. I am horrible at pronouncing things. So I am, I am making note of that right now, sir. Oh. It might it might, it might come in helpful later. Lovely. I'm so glad I shared that tidbit with you. Now, for more information on Martian Manhunter, please check out the Idle Head of Diablo podcast by our friend Diablo Frank, past guest of this show. And next is The Weird, number three, by Jim Starlin and Bernie Wrightson. Third issue in a four-issue miniseries featuring the JLI. You know, this series was actually one of my favorite JLI series because they were basically acting as the Justice Leaguers from the Bronze Age. Oh. Um, uh, Justice League of America comics. I mean, none of the heroes were cracking any jokes. They were all being very serious. They were getting down to business. Batman presented himself as a brilliant strategist and team player instead of the uh, whining, pissy guy. <laughs> That we all know and love. He's not whiny or pissy. He, just because he quit the team doesn't make him whiny. <laughs> I, suppo- I suppose not. For more on The Weird, check out Professor Allen's Quarter Bin podcast as he spent some time covering this miniseries. Okay, that wraps up the comics that featured the team as a whole. Let's move into like smaller groupings, one hero, two hero, whatever. So, what else was on the shelf? Well, there was Batman number 420 by Jim Starlin and Jim Apero. It's Ten Nights of the Beast Part 4, The Conclusion, where Batman sorta, kinda, kills the KG beast. But do not worry, sir. Marv Wolfman actually retconned that in Batman Year 3 in a way that actually really didn't make sense because Batman told Nightwing that he essentially notified the police of where they could pick the KG beast up. But given the KG beast's killing prowess, the only way that would really work without any loss of life to Gotham's finest was if, if Batman waited around five or six days so the KG beast would be so dehydrated from lack of water that he wouldn't have been able to put up much of a fight. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's my theory, sir. I think you spent a little too much time thinking about that. <laughs> I spend too much time thinking about a lot of things, sir. <laughs> Well, also on the shelves was Detective Comics number 586 by John Wagner, Alan Grant, and Norm freaking Brayfogle. Uh, mm. In that one, Batman continues his epic battle with the Ratcatcher. Yeah, as I said last <laughs> month, they can't all be winners, folks. So for more information on Batman during this era, check out our network's Batman Nightcast by Chris Franklin and Ryan Daly, both past guests of the show. Also on the shelves was Green Arrow number 5 by Mike Grawl and Ed Hannigan. In this one, Oliver goes undercover to investigate a hate crime, and Black Canary makes an appearance, and which might explain why she can't be reached in this issue. So, for more information on Black Canary, check out the Power of Fishnets podcast right here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network by Ryan Daly, again, past guest. And also, for more information on Green Arrow, or specifically this era of Green Arrow, check out the Warlord Worlds podcast by our good friends Darren and Ruth Sutherland. And they are indeed very, very good friends. Oh, they're wonderful. They're absolutely wonderful. Don't tell I said that, though, okay? Um, oh, no, I said that. Well, still, let's just keep it on the down low. Oh, uh, let's very, see. Very also on the shelves was Captain Adam number 15 by Kerry Bates, Greg Weissman, and Pat Broderick. Woo! Cap- in this issue, Captain Adam is defeated by major force. And I know that because it says it right on the cover. For more there information on Captain Adam, check out Jay Jones's coverage on the Silver and Gold podcast, also on his Splitting Adams blog. Just let me say, you know, the brilliant Greg Wiseman, who a lot of people know from Gargoyles and Young Justice, you know, he was actually 
uh, involved in the Captain Adam series from the very beginning uh, as a writing assistant to Carrie Bates. And, and it's, it pleases me to actually see him get a writing credit in this uh, on this series. I didn't know he was involved with Jung Justice. Look at that. See, I've always known him as a comic writer. I didn't realize he had done this other stuff with animation. That's really cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see. Last one on the shelves. And this is a bit of a weird one. Tales of the Teen Titans, number 90, by Marv Wolfman, Paul Levitz, and Eduardo Barreto. It's a bit of a cheat, really, because this is reprinting New Teen Titans, number 30, a comic that actually came out one month before JLI, number one. However, it does bear mentioning because both Batman and Booster Gold do make an appearance in the issue. And that is it for the monitor duty, folks. So it is time to get into this issue. But first, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. And when we come back, we're going to cover Justice League International, number 14. Where do you want that break, sir? What? (laughs) (laughs) Dudes, it's totally time to listen to fan holes. What's that, Mikey? Like only the most tubular, righteous, gnarly podcast ever. Um, I don't know, Mikey. I've got some science projects to work on. Yeah, Mikey, and you know, some of the things those fan holes say, you know, really ticks me off. Well, why don't we see what Master Splinter has to say about listening to fan holes? Yeah, sure. Okay, Leo. But what do you think, Master Splinter? Should we listen to Fan Holes, the pop culture podcast made for fans by the fans, or not? I say... Go, Fan Holes! Go, Fan Holes! Go! <laughs> I made another funny! <laughs> <laughs> Dude! Turtle Power Podcast Hour! A podcast crossover event featuring Fanhole's podcast, Bored with Friends, and Animated Indulgence, coming this September. Friday's late summer 2017. The Fire and Water Podcast Network's Siskoid, along with Dr. G, Man of Nerdology, and other guests, explore the greatest films in Hong Kong cinema. From Shaw Brothers Classics to the modern day, Kung Fu Friday is your one-stop shop for the greatest action ever put to film by human beings. Kung Fu Friday, a miniseries coming in July only at the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Be water, my friend. And we're back, folks. Now, if you want to follow along, if you can't seem to locate your copy of Justice League International Number 14, and I don't know why you wouldn't be able to, because quite frankly, you get a demerit if you can't. But anyway, if you don't have it handy, you can go out to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com, go up to the Shows tab, look for the JLI Podcast, and there there will be a gallery post for issue number 14, and you'll be able to see certain panels that we end up in covers and stuff like that we end up talking about today. So check that out. So here we go. This is Justice League International number 14, published by DC Comics, cover dated June 1988, cover price 75 cents, three shiny quarters, cover by Steve Lealoha and Al Gordon, same art team that we had on the uh, cover last month. So, Zoom, why don't you tell us a little about this cover? Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> 
Well, the body language is pretty stiff. Fire and ice seem to be in the exact same facial pose. Uh, they're almost <laughs> like twin twin sisters. Uh, in fact, Fire has apparently dislocated her left shoulder. Um, right. If you look really closely. And, uh, you know, I cannot tell whether this machinery is falling down or rising up if it wasn't for the title on the cover saying that it was a rain. Um, I mean, the Martian Manhunter appears to be catching a piece that is falling, while Captain Adam looks like he's trying to hold down a rising piece by the extension cord. So it's a little confusing, but the other thing is just the image as a whole, it's not really conveying the sense of danger or urgency that should come from a planet-wide threat that's going on in the book. And to be honest, that might be on purpose, and I'll get into that a little bit later when we get into the story. Yeah, cover blurb of Reign of Terror does imply it's coming down. Yeah, it's... All right, you know what? I'll just come out and say it. Folks, this is the least impressive cover of the entire Giffen Dimatteis run. And I'm including Justice League Quarterly, Justice League Europe, all of it. This one is the loser. It's it's very disappointing. The characters are very off-model. One thing about, like, Ice, she's blue. Her skin is blue <laughs> on the cover. Now, that I realize that's not Leia Aloha's fault. That's the colorist's fault. But still, she's blue in this cover. Like, what? Now, Ice Maiden may have been blue in the Super Friends comic. I really don't recall off the top of my head. I know the Ice Maiden they re- uh, introduced later on is blue, so... Uh, I'm partly colorblind, so I really can't tell. Okay. Maybe someone just had old reference material. Guy Gardner is prominently featured in the comic, but he is only features in one panel in the whole book, and it's just his back. So it's overall, this cover's a miss, and it's disappointing. So I, I don't really want to spend a lot more time on it, to be quite honest. Then let's move on, sir. Agreed. So getting into the issue. Plot and breakdowns by Keith Giffen. Script by J.M.D. Mateus. Pencils by Steve Lealoha. Inker Al Gordon. Letter Bob LaPan. Colorist Gene D'Angelo. And editor Andy Helfer. The issue is called Shop or Die. <laughs> All dun, right. dun, dun. I'll kick us off. Uh, as our story opens, the reader encounters this dejected little red alien on an unnamed world. This solitary alien is watching a massive machine disassemble itself, and the pieces are like flying away into space, returning to where they came from. We follow the pieces into outer space and arrive at an impressive double splash page featuring a gargantuan spaceship. Its design consists of a bunch of interconnected spheres, but its scope and general sense can't help but remind the readers of Galactus' world ship in Secret Wars. I know, strange reference, stay with me. Uh, it's actually, as near as I can tell, a very intentional art trick going on here, as the dialogue also talks about hunger and the need for resources and stuff. I mean, you really get a Galactus vibe off of this. Then the omniscient narrator clues us in that while this is happening light years from Earth, they wouldn't be wasting our time with the subplot if it wasn't going to cause trouble for the JLI. Of course not. Inside the ship, we meet the very shouty Manga Khan, and this metal-clad leader of The Cluster has a nasty habit of yelling impassioned monologues to no one in particular. And this is pointed out by Manga Khan's loyal servant, secretary, and lackey, Elron. Oh yes, folks. Elron has arrived. Ah, uh, Elron. <laughs> Everybody's favorite. Uh, the well, everyone cl- loves Elron. They do. They really do. I don't know anyone that doesn't like him. So, The cluster has apparently just finished harvesting the last of the resources from that unnamed planet below that we talked about earlier, and Elron has discovered the next target for the cluster's need for resources. It's Earth. Now, we jumped two weeks into the future, and we're at the JLI Embassy. Two very important characters to the future of the JLI are meeting Oberon for the very first time. It's Green Flame and Ice Maiden. They have arrived at the Embassy and are demanding to meet with Martian Manhunter, even threatening Oberon with some flame breath. Now, the Manhunter from Mars arrives, and Ice Maiden announces their intention to join the JLI. Meanwhile, in suburbia, Scott Free, also known as Mr. Miracle, is stargazing and notices something's very wrong. There's a whole clusters of stars that are missing. Get it? Get it? Clusters? Eh? Clever. Uh, 
<laughs> now, as the reader, let me guess, he was eating some oat clusters while, oh, while he was observing this, right? Could be, could be. Now, as the reader, we can kind of make out the silhouette of actually the cluster ship against the black starfield, blocking out the view of the stars. It's actually pretty clever. But meanwhile, inside the house, Scott's wife, Big Barda, is preparing for some house guests, namely Blue Beetle and Booster Gold. Now, as the Blue and the Gold duo prepare to leave the embassy and transport over to Scott and Barda's, we get some Star Trek humor again, and Beetle explains to Booster how Barda is extremely womanly, but not necessarily a lady. Back on the cluster ship, Mangakon is getting up to speed on Earth's abundant resources and the only real potential threat to their plans, which is Earth's superheroes. Mangakon once again gets all shouty and orders their plan into action. Two drone ships depart the cluster on course for Earth. And now we get into the big action scene of this issue. Back at that unnamed planet that was devastated on page one, a meteor comes rocketing down out of the skies, flaming through the atmosphere like a pebble flung downward like an, from an angry god. The object strikes the surface and bounces a few more times until it comes to a stop and curses in an alien tongue. But it is not the meteor that speaks, oh no, but its occupant. And it was revealed that this meteor is actually a piece of the Manhunter stronghold that blew to pieces along with the planet Orinda. In what the editor's note said happened in Justice League International issue 12, but it actually happened in issue number 10, which further supports my theory that the Suicide Squad crossover was actually planned to happen before the Millennium crossover, but I digress. Ah, yeah, you might be onto something there. Because I haven't really gotten to the best part, and since this is the best part of the story, God help us all. Because the occupant I had mentioned is Nort, Green Lantern of Space Sector 68. Or was that 69? <laughs> Nort lifts his paw and with a hey, 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 ring-a-ding, finds out that this unnamed world actually does have a name. Yektamektakovia. And if you thought saying nuclear was, uh, was a hard word. <laughs> and it was just recently depleted of resources in that Galactus-type fashion you mentioned. Suddenly, that red alien from page one, the one with the target on his back, starts rushing towards Nort, arms flailing, proclaiming what had happened, and without the translation, he seems to be implicating a German Marxist playwright, a noteworthy American record producer, and a former Republican senator of Alaska. <laughs> But the next page jumps to Nort streaking through space, revealing through clever exposition that he was able to use his ring to translate everything that alien was telling him, and he is now in pursuit of the aliens that destroyed Yektamektakovia. He also states that he is aware that other Green Lanterns think that he received his ring through nepotism, and he sees this as an opportunity to prove himself as a real Green Lantern. Suddenly, as he approaches Saturn, he asks, Hey, ring-a-ding! And the ring has a bit of a sardonic tone as it responds, Yeah? Where was it? Was I going again? Earth. And why are we going there? <sighs> Gosh, I didn't know power rings could sigh. <laughs> Meanwhile, far ahead of him on Earth, in the Australian outback to be exact, we see what is described as a deadly destructive machine, well, at least in the uh, in the text, coming together while Captain Crick and Commander Suru look on. Of course, Suru was commenting about how the captain's night courses in log entry are paying off. Crick informs the cluster that they are ready to begin transmission. We cut to back to Scott Free and Barda's home, where Barda is cooking lasagna using mayonnaise. Everyone knows you use mayonnaise to make chocolate cake. Oh. You've never had emergency chocolate cake with mayonnaise? No! No! <laughs> I hate mayonnaise! <laughs> 
You are in for a treat when you come to visit, sir. Anyway, Scott, Booster, and Ted Cord are watching a football game in the living room when suddenly it becomes preempted by Elron, who offers the entire world the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to partake in interstellar barda with several planets across the galaxy. Planets that just happen to want what the Earth has in abundance. Of course, I don't go into specifics about what those are. The cluster offers to serve as a go-between to negotiate trade deals on behalf of Earth for such trifles as alien technology or fashionable attire from Andromeda. We see that this intrusive transmission is being broadcast simultaneously across the entire world and is viewed by various world leaders as well as Maxwell Lord from his hospital bed. Elron explains that the Earth has only 12 hours to take advantage of this limited time offer. Otherwise, the cluster will just take what they want and leave the Earth a ravaged wasteland. Offer void where prohibited, trade negotiations in good faith will not be honored. Like clockwork, the Justice League signal calls out, and as Ted, Booster, and Scott prepare to leave, Barda hints at her plans for Scott later in the evening that makes him determined to overcome this crisis as quickly as possible. Anyone who is married knows exactly what we're talking about. Yes, we do. At the JLI Embassy, Fire and Ice are ready to serve, but Jean orders them to leave. Meanwhile, the Cluster finally realizes that the people of Earth are actually not united under one rule, and they're very contentious and can't agree on anything. In short, they will blow that 12-hour deadline. Lord Manga Khan, Manga Khan, Manga, Manga Khan, says that... <laughs> I do it all the time myself. <laughs> says that that is not their concern, saying that the operation will proceed as usual. While the United Nations deliberates, Reed argues, about considering the offer, the active JLI members, Sans Batman, who quit, and Black Canary, who cannot be located due to Mike Grell, stand assembled in the office of their UN delegate, who notes that the deliberations, Reed arguments, are going nowhere, and it is now eight hours left before the end of the world. The Martian Manhunter says that the League will protect the planet, this he swears on his life, and the lives of his fellow leaguers, even though he didn't quite consult with them on that matter. In the main assembly room, we see that Fire and Ice are essentially shadowing the League. Ice thinks it's a waste of time and an embarrassment, appearing desperate to join a League that clearly does not want them. Fire, though, is insistent that the JLI will realize that they can use any superpowered hand that they can get. In fact, Jean Jones appears suddenly and says that he actually has something important to discuss with the two ladies. And as the former Global Guardians follow Jean out of the assembly room, Fire quietly sings to Ice, I told you so. (laughs) Back out at the Outback. Oh man, I can't believe I just said that. (laughs) We see the fully assembled machine and eavesdrop on a conversation from the maintenance detail, who I am not quite sure are supposed to resemble characters from the Transformers or Rom the Space Knight. What do you think, sir? I'm going with Transformers, but I I definitely see what you're... Or even possibly like a 2000 AD, you know, sort of sci-fi character. One box is talking to another box. We'll just leave it at that. There you go. And the big takeaway is that they, too, do not think the Earthers are going to make that deadline, and most of the worlds they visit never do. Finally, we see that Nort has arrived and is scoping out the situation from the surface of the moon. And even though he has no plan, nor a strong sense of self-assurance, he flies up to attack the cluster ship with a, hey, 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 old Nort's on the way. <laughs> and next issue, if this be Nort's day. All right. Well. Oh, my goodness. I would say there's a lot to unpack here, but I kind of don't think there is. I mean, there's a lot for us to talk about, but... Well, there's a lot happening in this issue to build the story, but when I first read this issue, I felt that really nothing was happening. Right. It, it's it's a big, big setup issue. It's yes. kind of what it yes, is. Yes, it is. Yeah, there, there was hardly any action. In fact, the only action scene is Nort bouncing on the devastated planet of Yektamektakovia. Hats off to saying that, by the way. <laughs> oh, sure. I almost called it Cookamongophobia for a moment there. <laughs> 
Um, I will. I'll start off by saying that I love the splash page of the cluster. Uh, mm, it's, yes, I think that double splash page is great. I love the bit where they make you think it's a Galactus kind of thing. That the, the mm-hmm. narrator actually gets in on the jokes here. I mean, that's kind of strange. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's it, it kind of breaks the fourth wall a little bit there, which is pretty cool. Yeah, I, I think I feel like this issue. I'm, I'm trying to figure out how to say this. I feel like this issue went for more like outlandish humor than previous issues. So like not necessarily yes. funny jokes. Or or really clever dialogue. I mean, that's there there too. But but it's more like instead of being clever dialogue, it's like absurdity. The humor comes from the situations and the the, the craziness of it. Like I said, the narrator's cracking jokes. You know, Elrond definitively breaks the fourth wall. The minor cast members are cr- cracking jokes about log entries and things like that. You know, mm-hmm. the Nort stuff's over the top. The whole concept of the cluster is you know basically a, a riff on the home shopping network. So I just feel oh, like yes. it went from sarcasm, well, sarcasm and humor into a realm of absurdity, which isn't a bad thing. I can see where this issue might have crossed the line for some fans. Yeah, and you know, I, I will say that this, the one saving grace of this book was the humor. I think that's what really carries the book. There are a lot of Monty Python-esque lines of dialogue throughout this that at least makes this issue an entertaining read. But I, I will say, you know, when you saw that big cluster ship in that two-page spread, you knew this was a big threat coming. And yet, you know, if there was supposed to be building tension throughout this book as the clock is ticking closer to the impending destruction of our civilization, I didn't really feel it at all. And a lot of it is probably that absurdity that, that you were talking about, but also, you know, the, the cluster just seems so nonchalant about it. And even the Justice League seems pretty nonchalant about it. I mean, they seem to be more concerned about Batman and Black Canary being absent from the team than this huge alien invasion. And and I think that was all intentional, but it just, it just left this issue feeling a bit empty to me in that regard. Yeah, the only page that really sort of builds that clock is ticking on us thing is the UN page, where the UN representatives are arguing. Right. You know, and even that, even that's kind of for jokes, though, to talk about, you know, they think, or the Soviets think it's the United States, and they're, you know, yes. arguing about that. But yeah, they're, they're, the, the ticking clock doesn't feel that dangerous. No, yeah. no, it doesn't. So there's that lack of action, there's that lack of sense of danger, so you know, it was a bit unsatisfying in, in, in that regard. But I will say one other thing about this book, it actually made me appreciate Nort. Mm, okay. I said, that, I said that Nort was the best part of this book, and he is, to me, anyway. I mean, in Justice League International, issue 10, which introduced Nort, I hated him. I hated really? the I hated the very concept of him. I I always held the Green Lantern Corps in high regard, like Starfleet, you know, a paramilitary okay. organization that's supposed to be the most honest and fearless members. Only one member turned renegade because the power had gone to his head. We know who we're talking about. So the guy, uh, Guy Gardner, <laughs> no, but even in this era of the sociopathic Guy Gardner, you know, I thought the idea of an incompetent Green Lantern that received his ring through nepotism because he had this this influential uncle. It just didn't sit well with me. And he was making bathroom jokes in issue 10. Crudest form of humor. And he still made a bathroom joke on the last page of this issue, but in the rest of the scenes, he was pretty darn funny. Uh, Especially with him trying to figure out what the Yektamektakovian was trying to say on page 12. And That's my favorite bit with him, too. When he sits down, he's like, this is going to take a while. Oh, and he sits like a dog, too. Really? Yes. If you look at him, he is sitting like how a human would sit if he was pretending to sit like a dog. Oh! Oh, yeah. 
Ah. It was very, very clever. Just like how you can't see the cluster among the stars, but you can see the cluster among the stars. That's It's a very clever bit that the artist has done. It's one, it's one of the saving graces of Mr. Le Aloha, because I, I know we're going to go into the artwork pretty soon. But yeah. But back to the funny parts with Nort, that that part with the Yectomectocovian, uh, I just love saying that, you can tell, on page 12. <laughs> and, and then on page 13, when he has to have his ring remind him of his mission, and the ring voice was sighing because this is obviously not the first time and that right. gosh i didn't know power rings could sigh it was just brilliant and then on page 13 we have that great use of exposition it reminds the reader of his history for those people that either forgot or didn't read issue 10 but also it's taken from that interesting perspective that you know nort knows what the rest of the green lantern corps thinks of him that he's right. not qualified and that he only got the job because his uncle pulled some strings with the guardians or whatnot and that's the reason why protecting the sector where there's no life larger than a single cell. So he's determined to prove himself. And, and this issue really conveys the visual and vocal cues of Art Carney's Norton in The Honeymooners. So the, with this issue, the character really clicked with me here. So I, I got to give props to that. And if people aren't aware, that was a very intentional thing that, that when they designed Nort, they, they wanted it based on Honeymooners, like yep. you said, Art Carney. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's even got the vest. <laughs> yes, yes, he does. It does. And the speech patterns are there. I mean, it, there's a lot of similarities. Now, apparently over time, he also took on traits of Woody Allen, mm-hmm. but uh, it started off mostly as an Art Carney riff where we are. I now. suspect that his ring voice sounds just like Jackie Gleason. Oh my gosh. Oh. Man, that's going to change everything. Oh, I'll have to I'll have to reread that and see about it. I'm going to have to look up a future issues of JLI just to see if the ring goes, "Hey Nort, come on down." Right. <laughs> That would be great. This is sort of segueing to the art, but it's about Nort. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of people interpret Nort differently, and at this point, obviously, it's only a second appearance. So really, there 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 is no fixed look mm-hmm. for Nort. He even looks a little different here than he did in issue ten. And this isn't my Nort yet, and I'm not quite sure when we're going to get there. Like this isn't my Nort. The Joe Staten version isn't my Nort. It's somewhere in between. Somewhere we're going to be reading an issue. I'm going to go. That's what Nort looks like to me. But this this isn't it yet. I wouldn't say it's necessarily my Nort either. I can see that. In fact, a little bit later. I will talk about a few different versions of Nort, and maybe one of those are your favorite. We'll see. Okay. Now, also on the on the realm of the art, you know, we mm-hmm. talked about the breakdowns were by Keith Giffen, and you can clearly tell that there's a lot of usage of nine panel grids, things like that. That that little red alien mm. looks such like a Keith Giffen design. Oh my gosh, it looks so Keith Giffen. But overall, Steve Lealoha. Oof. This is tough. The art, okay, well, the cover was straight up bad. Sorry. No. The interiors are not bad. They're really not. The interiors are okay, is, is, is probably the way to put it. There's some nice, I mean, there are nice pieces. Like I said, the cluster thing looks great. All the tech inside mm-hmm. the cluster looks really cool. The sci-fi elements look cool. I love the weird goggles that Scott Free's using to look at space. You know, the women do look sexy, but the art is... The faces, you know, on page, well, there's no page numbers. Oh, 15, where the guys are watching football. I mean, their faces are all just generic guy faces. There's, there's nothing distinguishing. Some of them look like boy faces, actually. Yeah, I'm, I see the Mr. Miracle panel you're talking about right in the middle, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's it just, it's disappointing, especially yeah, yeah. Kevin Maguire. Come on off, Kevin Maguire and even uh, Giffen. It's like, wow. Well, the art's okay. It's just not stellar in terms of rendering. I mean, you look at the scene where Booster and Beetle are walking towards the teleporter tubes. Mm-hmm. They look like they look like puppets from the Thunderbirds. Yeah. Thunderbirds are go, you know. But that was a show I happened to like, so maybe that's why I can tolerate the art a little bit better than you can. Well, like, even that sweatshirt that Booster's wearing throughout the thing just looks... It's, it's, it's hard to even figure out that's what he's wearing as a sweatshirt. It's like, what is that giant bulky thing he has on? <laughs> right. 
because the collar's all weird. It's, it's almost like he's wearing it backwards or something. You know, and, get, and, and actually, as the issue goes on, I suspect maybe he was running out of time as he did the issue because the art actually gets worse as the comic goes along. It, it does look rushed. Yeah, indeed. Uh, are you familiar with Mr. Le Aloha's work prior to this book? Only a little bit. Like, I looked at his, his, his comic book database page today, and I've seen a lot of his you know stuff. Like, I probably knew him best from the early Star Wars issues when he was working with Chaikin. Beyond that, I mean, he's got a zillion inking credits. He's got quite a few penciling credits, but I, help me out here. What Besides Fables, obviously, what, where would you say some of his best stuff is? Yeah, I, I remember Mr. Le Aloha's work from Star Reach and the Quack issues, and, and in those, he was mostly drawing funny animal stories like Newton the Rabbit and mm. other strange creatures, and there were a few humans mixed in, mostly women, sexy women, hot women. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the robots and the aliens, and especially Nort and the Yektamektakovian, they all look really good here. Uh, the humans don't. The men don't look really good here. Um, right. But the storytelling is strong, at least. Unlike the cover, you at least get a better sense of what is going on. That's fair. Yeah, there's no confusion in the issue of what's happening. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. But we really don't We really don't see him doing any action scenes. We have to wait a whole month to see that. Yeah, next month we'll see that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I would say the standout on this issue, really, it's it's the dialogue and the absurdity of some of the things that happens. Like, you know, we get the introduction of MangaCon, which is awesome. He's, he's one of the most iconic JLI you know, foes, adversaries, whatever. He's also I, I one love MangaCon. He's also one of the most ridiculous. You know, and and yes. I think people love that. In fact, I started thinking about it, and I never put this together, but like his his ridiculous leadership style and his character quirks, quirks are actually a little bit reminiscent of Colonel Harjavati. Mm-hmm. You know, having a, a, a boisterous leader who's overly confident, and the people follow him but make jokes behind his back. You know, things like that. There's a lot of similarities there with him and Harjavati. Yes, yes, they do. Yeah. Yeah, except I don't think he talked out loud to himself. Uh, probably not, because that's that's his particular gag. You, you quoted him earlier in the in the episode, you know, Harjavati. That is, he had funny little bits that he would say, and people would mock afterward. And obviously, he becomes a huge character throughout all the JLI run, which is which is fantastic. And then, uh, and I love how they set him up initially. You think he's it's a Galactus level threat, and it turns out to be this guy who's like a complete joke, you know. <laughs> Right. That's why I was thinking it was all intentional. Wow, there's really no no uh, tension towards this big uh, destruction of the Earth. I, I think you're probably right. Uh, we also get the introduction of Elrond, which is wonderful. Which at this point he just seems like a minor throwaway character, but in the long run he's going to, you know, obviously become even more important to the JLI. Now you talked about the intentions. I actually have a, an article from Back Issue Magazine, issue number three, where they did an interview with Giffen and DiMatteis. Couple diff, couple behind the scenes things for you here. In the in the interview, Giffen does say that MangaCon was he said he was basically my swipe at Jeanette Khan, former DC president. So he, mm. so he actually, I guess, saw some personality traits from Manga Khan in, in her. Now, he was doing the plotting. J.M. DiMatteis would have done the script. For, for DiMatteis, he said that as he was reading it, you know, he got this whole Galactus vibe going. So he decided to do sort of a Stan Lee parody. So that was his, that's what he laid over <laughs> Manga Khan. So uh, the captions get very dramatic. I'm trying to read the thing here. because he, he was making this sort of mid-60s Stan Lee impassioned long speeches. Now, I'm a big Stan Lee fan and passionate, long speeches, but it's great fun to make fun of him, too. And for this, of course, being Justice League, everyone around Khan was aware of the fact that he did this and it annoyed everybody. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that Jeanette Kahn and Stan Lee were the targets there, you know, head of Marvel, head of DC. And then Elrond, apparently, I guess that's a more of a, a DiMatteis creation because Giffen then says Elrond came pretty much straight out of the dialogue. Remember, Giffen's doing plots. DiMatteis is doing dialogue. He goes, oh. uh, I know for a fact that Elrond was something I just picked up the ball and ran with. So he must 
must have given him a plot. They created Elrond for the funny bits, and Giffen just fell in love with it. Yeah, and somebody was reading Dianetics. Oh, you think so? Well, where else did Elrond come from? Oh my gosh! Oh, I didn't think about that. Well, it doesn't have to be Dianetics necessarily. I mean, he was a huge science fiction writer, too. That is true. That is true. I, I, I for one, will stand up for the for the book version of Battlefield Earth. I mean, I've read that thing a couple times, actually. It's a great book. I um, heard they made a movie on that. No, 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 they didn't. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then Giffen says, uh, as far as the whole cluster thing, he did picture it being the Home Shopping Network. And somewhere along the line, it became this weird barter system. So the, the Home Shopping Network thing is great because, I mean, Home Shopping Network was a big thing at the time. You know, QVC was probably around by this point. Anyway, the, the whole cluster and Elrond and MegaCon were wonderful creations. I, I wonder at the time how throwaway they were because, as we said, there doesn't really feel like there's a big threat in this issue, really. But they ended up becoming such a such a huge, important thing to the to the whole you know, JLI mythos. I love it. Yeah, and we are on the ground floor. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, other big things happen. Fire and ice. Well, I'm sorry. Green Flame and Ice Maiden. Mm-hmm. They, they don't necessarily join the team, but they're there. They're interacting with the JLI, and Marsh Manor says he needs their help, so that could be considered them joining the team. Awesome. That's going to be fantastic. Green Flame has green hair, yes? Yes, but it's colored black here quite a bit mm-hmm. with green highlights. And, and it's not just me. Okay. Well, I, I have never read the Super Friends comic. I should have, but for whatever reason in my entire life, I have that has escaped me. So I have to wonder if that was her hair color in the Super Friends comic. I just don't know. No, I, it, it was green, my understanding. Okay. Well, it will be green again soon. And you are in for a treat when you finally read those Super Friends comic books. Yeah? I keep hearing that. I keep hearing that. Well, that's now- because it's true, sir. <laughs> No, everybody lies to me. All right, so uh, Booster and Beetle, the bromance is in full swing here. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, you know, It started in issue eight, or a little bit earlier, but eight was really where it started blossoming, and now it is totally in full swing, which is great. They're a buddy cop movie waiting to happen. Now, yep. question for you. Mm. There is some commentary I've read online about this issue, about the treatment of women, especially Barda, you know, being in the kitchen, you know, not knowing how to cook, doing the transporter, mm-hmm. you know, fire and ice, really, or specifically fire, playing up the sex appeal, uh, all that sort of thing. So, specifically about Booster and Beetle. My question to you is, are they harmless, douchey bros, you know, with with all the sexual innuendos they make, or are they misogynistic pigs? Which one would you think? I'm leaning towards the, the former. I think so, too. Probably because I know people like that, and they are more towards the former than... But but they usually have a big barda in their life to kind of, you know, whip them into shape. Absolutely. Put them in their place, so to speak. Uh, I, the number of times I've said a, a woman is hot on this podcast could be documented in, you know, large numbers. Numbers. And I would consider myself, when I'm doing that, to be more the harmless douchey bro kind of thing. You say there's, <laughs> but there's, still, still douchey. Remember, that's your absolutely, term. Well, yeah. I fully acknowledge, I fully acknowledge that. Yeah. Uh, I, I get that. And it, But it, it's usually done for humor. You know, it's, it's, it's more intended to be harmless. And you talk about a strong woman in their lives. Believe me, my wife could kick all our asses. My wife can kick your ass harder than your wife. Really? Okay. Well. I'm pretty sure. I don't know. She can kick mine pretty well. My wife's pretty awesome. So, and she puts up with a lot of crap. She's married to me so let's face it yes i still don't know what i have done to deserve my wife i absolutely married up and that poor woman is saddled with me and i feel bad for her now mm. um we get more star trek humor beetle makes a joke about the transporters he calls him uh, he calls him like dr mccoy or whatever like that yes yes because doctor always the doctor always hated those um, yep. those transporters and then those two aliens on the planet are are captain crick and lieutenant sulu so that obviously demateus is really living his star trek love through this th- through 
this book. Yeah, and, and by calling it Suru, I was wondering if that was really a bad Japanese language joke. Uh, it could be. It could very well be. I don't know. Should I be offended? That's entirely up to you, sir. Okay, well, let me deliberate on that for a while. Okay. You keep talking out loud to yourself. <laughs> Well, really, my last note here is about the cluster drone ship. You know, it lands in the Australian outback. Now, again, keep in mind, Giffen did the plot here. A year from now, he's going to write Invasion, where they decimate Australia as well. So Giffen's must be just, he's got some real fascination with Australia right now. Now, I realize this is the era of Crocodile Dundee, but that's going back to the well a bit much, don't you think? Well, wait a minute. Do you, do you call it a fascination if he's going to put an engine of destruction there and then eventually devastate it later? I mean, I think Crocodile Dundee is has incensed his hatred for Australia. Could be. That's not a comic. Now this is a comic. Could be something along <laughs> those lines. Yeah, could very well be. Well, all in all, it's not a disappointing issue. I don't want to say that, because that's not true. There's a lot of fun stuff in here. Again, we really cross the line from sharp wit to absurdity, which is funny in its own way. It's just different. There's a lot to like in this issue. There's a lot of really important turning points for the series in here. Overall, though, you know, how would you compare it to the previous issue? I did say I found it very unsatisfying, but the humor, at least, and some of the witty dialogue, and, and then a lot of the quotable quotes and just the running gag uh, with with Manka Khan and everybody just pointing out to him when he's talking out loud or shouting again or all that type of stuff. It, it carried me through. Let me just put it that way. It is one of the weaker issues, at least of the first first 25 issues of Justice League. Yeah. And I think a lot, sadly, I hate to say it has to do with the art. Because, I mean, if this had been done by, you know, McGuire or even mm. Giffen or even, you know, Hughes down the line, I don't think we would have noticed the, the lack of things happening as much. Uh, possibly, yeah. Yes. All right. Well, moving on, let's get into some of the house ads. Because let me tell you, there are some pretty cool freaking house ads in this issue that we're talking oh, okay. about. I guess because this came out in the month of February, I guess DC was having a hard time selling ads because they just packed this thing full of house ads. Hmm. Not enough video game and M&M ads to uh, keep the revenue going, I suppose. Anyway, the first one I want to talk about is an ad for the comic Manhunter. This is the John Ostrander, Kim Yale, Doug Rice book. It's, yes. a, it's, a, it's half ad for the comic, half subscription ad. It says, mm-hmm. after millennium, only one man, Manhunter survives to stalk the world's most dangerous game, Manhunter. Mm-hmm. And if you subscribe now, what do you get, Zoom? You get a mask, Ooh. a Manhunter mask. And I had this mask. My uncle purchased two subscriptions of Manhunter, and he sent me the extras with the extra mask. Really? It was on, yes. It was in a piece of cardboard, really. It was a cardboard mask that you had to kind of put together. It was a cereal box cardboard type of thing. It was folded in half and delivered with the first issue in, in an envelope. Uh, you basically punch it out and there's some origami folding that you have to do on some pre-scored lines and, and you needed some tape. And and then you would make it a three-dimensional mask. And, it, and I remember it looking pretty cool. But because it was made from cereal box cardboard, it didn't last very long. Yeah, I can only imagine. Now, I have a strange memory of this mask. I I swear I have held one in my hands before. I can't, but I didn't have a subscription to Manhunter. Certainly not from the beginning. So I I don't know how I would have held it other than I did manage a comic book shop at the time. That's what I was thinking right there. Yeah, yeah, maybe someone came in and and sold it or brought it to us. I don't know. But I did love this series. I really did. I read it. I I came to it very late in the game, but quickly bought a lot of the back issues and just really enjoyed it. I loved the look. Doug Rice's designs were amazing. Uh, Not every subsequent artist was able to capture it as well, but just the concept was great. Great. I, I absolutely loved it. Yeah, it was it was very good. I I liked how it was it was very Japanese manga ness. Oh yeah, absolutely. So that's another one for the manga con. <laughs> 
<laughs> now, for more information on the Manhunter, check out the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour by our buddy Aaron Moss. All right, up next is an ad for Action Comics, and this is actually one of a series of ads. This one says Action Comics, and it has one of those you know marquees like from the old movie theaters, and it says oh, yes. "Closed for Remodeling," which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. And the subsequent ads, using the same formula of the marquee, the next one would say Action Comics Remodeling in Progress, then Action Comics Watch for Grand Opening, and then Action Comics Gala Premiere April 8th, listing the different characters. I've only got the one ad here for the clothes for remodeling in this issue, but if you want to see the rest, go check out the Fortress of Baileytude blog run by Michael Bailey. I have no idea who that guy is. He cataloged all of those. Now, yeah, he has some kind of weird fascination uh, for action comics. I have no idea why. I, I no idea. Well, I think uh, Green Lantern was in there at one point. So, or Secret Six. Oh, Secret Six. Probably. Yeah. I found some of those features to be a bit hit or miss. Yeah. Uh, but my uncle told me that he really loved Action Comics Weekly because it harkened back to the anthology comics he had read in his youth like more fun and flash comics and early action comics. Nice. Enough. Nice. So I, I love the, the anthology concept of DC. I love a lot of the Bronze Age anthologies. I really enjoy reading some of the Golden Age ones. It just seems like every time they try and come out with Modern Day, I buy it, but I don't love it. Like the showcase books that they did through the 90s, I bought every issue. I did it to support it, but only sometimes would I, would I love it, you know? It reminded me of New Talent Showcase, to be honest. They, they almost seemed like it seemed like it was the tryout book. It was to some extent, but new, new talent, talent showcase. I mean, that's that's a bit of a low bar there, sir. Well, you know, actually, there were some diamonds in the rough in, <laughs> in new talent showcase. For more on the Action Comics Weekly, check out the Action Comics Weekly podcast from our buddy Chad Bokelman, former guest on this show. I think that show's on hiatus right now, or permanent hiatus, but old episodes should be out there. It's a monthly podcast on a weekly series, right? <laughs> that's the theory behind it. Well, let's be nice to Chad. I mean, he was a past guest on the show, came in here, stepped in, and helped us out with the JLI, so... We gotta we gotta be nice to him sometimes. Fair enough. You know, all all of my jibes are good natured and, and to be honest, just trying to do my own regular podcast, the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. <laughs> uh, I, I I am just amazed on how you're able to, to, to do these on a regular schedule. I will be lucky if I can get my podcast running monthly. Ugh. All right, Pluggy McPluggenstein. Uh, I think that, <laughs> I think that's enough plugs for now. So the next is a okay. half-page ad for Aquaman. And if you don't know, there's a podcast about Aquaman and Firestorm called the Fire and Water Podcast. But anyway, it's a half-page ad for the Aquaman special. And it says, Aquaman risks his soul to regain his life. The missing piece is written by Dan Mishkin and Gary Cohn, the guys who created Blue Devil, or the writers. Uh, art by George Freeman and Mark Pasella. And it got a great little shot of Aquaman sort of doing big, you know, spread legs, spread arms, doing some, you know, Broadway number. And he's probably standing on a rock or a whale with the, you know, the raging sea behind him. With the, and I love that logo where the cue leads to a wave. I love that. Oh, that is a lovely logo. And I remember seeing a version of that logo where you actually see like a, a side view of Aquaman swimming. That would be the Craig Through Hamilton that, cover of number yes. one. Yes. Yeah. The, I really love that revamp logo. It's a pity it didn't last. I know. I know. It's pretty. It's beautiful. This was the ghost in the camo blue suit Aquaman story. Is that right? Yeah. We don't need to. We don't need to spend a lot of time talking about that. Where. Where, where Aquaman was in his regular orange and green, but his like missing piece was in the in the blue camo suit for some reason. Yeah, unfortunately, it was sort of like signaled the end for the blue camo suit, which I loved, and the art didn't do the camo suit any favors. So, less said about it, the better. But again, there is an Aquaman and Firestorm podcast. And enough. Oh, yeah, you can talk about it there. Enough plugging out of you, buddy. All right. Uh, <laughs> up next is an ad for oh, I don't know some little book. I don't think it ever went anywhere called The Killing Joke. 
the definitive Joker story that had been receiving a bit of criticism of late, except really it hasn't been of late, because I actually recall hearing that criticism in my social circles ever since this controversial story was first released. Really? Wow. Yeah, this is really nothing, this is really nothing new, and I don't mean to belittle it. The, the criticism definitely has merit, uh, but, I, but I'm just, uh, I just wanted to point out for a lot of these people that think, oh, because of the internet and the social circles, everybody's hearing about it. No, no, no. People have been talking like this about that story from the from the very beginning that's fascinating to hear because that that's not an angle i i hear often because in my from my perspective i got this when it first came out i was 15 years old mm-hmm. and so i was my brain wasn't in that kind of headspace you know so for me at the time it, alan moore wrote a really powerful really amazing joker story now again embedded in there there are some pretty terrible things now that i'm more aware of but you can't deny some of the joker stuff and that it's just like the origin of joker and things like that. just wow powerful stuff and Brian Bolland art, I mean, that's going to go a heck of a long way to make anything impressive. Oh, yeah. It, it, it is a good story, I will admit. Uh, the, uh, uh, you know, despite all the criticism, it does have merit. But, you know, it, it, it definitely accentuates how frightening the Joker can be. Yeah, I mean, there's, for lack of a better word, nowadays I see a lot of elements of it as basically torture porn. I mean, really, it's, yes. it, it's very difficult to read now as an adult and a parent and things like that. It doesn't take away from the pieces of the comic that are amazing, but the package, the whole package itself becomes very hard to make it through for me nowadays. Yeah, it's it, it's one of those uh, brilliantly done stories that you really don't want to read again. Huh, there you go. That's a good way to put it. Mm. Um, all right. Uh, but the ad's gorgeous. I mean, it's Brian Ballin. It's that shot of the Joker as he comes up out of the water and he's, his hands are running through his hair and he's just totally manic with the laughing behind him. Just wow, powerful. There are a couple more ads in here, but they were in basically the same ads that were in last month, so we'll skip that. So that is it for the house ads. All right. Up next, one of my favorite segments, because I get to sit on my butt and let the guests do the heavy lifting, a segment I like to call... Character Spotlight. And this is where our buddy Zoom is going to be asked to share some thoughts about one of the characters from this issue. Not necessarily has to be an origin recap, but more about where the characters were in the DC Universe and before before joining the JLI, how the JLI affected him, things like that. And Zoom, I think you've actually requested a particular character, a character who, it's only his second appearance, but by golly, he deserves the spotlight. Zoom, why don't you tell us a little bit about Nort Espelade Niesmark? It's actually Nort Esplanade Niesmacher, but close enough, sir. Pronunciation is my weakness. Uh, Native to the planet Newt, he first appeared in Justice League International, Volume 1, Issue 10. According to Hal Jordan, in that issue, Nort's uncle was an influential member of the Green Lantern Corps, and he pulled enough strings with the Guardians of the Universe to get his imbecilic nephew a spot in the Corps, operating out of the one space sector the Guardians suspected was completely devoid of multi-celled life, Space Sector 68. Or was that 69? Despite the Guardians' best efforts, efforts, however, Nort actually came across a full-fledged menace and somehow managed to infiltrate Orinda, the homeworld of the robotic manhunters. He explored the planet for an indefinite amount of time, essentially looking for the gents, and ultimately stumbled across a contingent of Earth heroes who had come to destroy Orinda and succeeded. Which brings us to Nort's appearance in this very issue. And as I've stated, I hated the idea of an incompetent Green Lantern that received the ring through nepotism, and apparently the writer of the Green Lantern series at the time had thought so too. For in a four-part tale entitled A Guy and His Nort in Green Lantern Volume 3, Issues 9 through 12, Guy Gardner discovered that Nort and his Uncle Newman were actually given their rings by the Palachians, a race of alien clowns who posed as the guardians of the universe, while the real guardians were in another dimension uh, shagging the Zam- Zamrons. <laughs> 
These Palachian posers were part of a scheme by the weaponers of Quard, who created fake Green Lantern rings and this fake Green Lantern Corps to discredit the real Green Lantern Corps by having their name associated with these idiotic members, such as Nort. Eventually, Nort and Guy make their way to Quard in this story, where Nort eventually saves Guy's life and destroys the source of power for his and the other fake power rings. But for his heroism, the real Guardians awarded Nort with a real power ring and the status of a genuine Green Lantern. Now, there is more to Nort's story, of course, much of which you will discover in later episodes of the Justice League International Bwahaha podcast. But before I pass the mic back to you, sir, please allow me to briefly touch on some notable factoids that most likely will not be covered in future podcast episodes. Hmm. Okay. In 2006, Nort's character had taken on a very, very serious demeanor in the Guy Gardner Collateral Damage miniseries that was written and illustrated by Howard Chaikin. And in that story, it was revealed that Nort's homeworld of Newt had been destroyed by the Ranthanagar War, which probably explained the tonal shift in his attitude. That's actually the most serious you'll ever see Nort be. Hmm. And in other media, Nort made a noteworthy appearance in the Batman the Brave and the Bold episode, The Eyes of Despero. <laughs> Yes, he did. He saved the day, in fact. And then, uh, and that was in 2009. And then in a very recent 2017 episode of Justice League Action, the Fatal Fair episode, he was hitching a ride with Roxy Rocket. You see him kind of stranded because his power ring was, was dead. And Roxy Rocket gives him, gives him a ride. Oh, I should also mention that Nort also had the honor of becoming a recurring swear word on the brilliant Green Lantern, the animated series from 2012 to 2013. <laughs> Oh, Norts. Oh, that is great. <laughs> he's also a Scooby-Doo team-up issue. Oh, was he? Yes, he was. No, yes, I definitely was. have to see that. Did they reveal that they were cousins? I don't remember. I bought it. Actually, my daughter wanted to get it because she saw Nort on the cover and said, oh. Dad, I got to have this. And so we bought it, and it's, I haven't read it in ages, so I don't recall, but it's it's fun. Everybody loves Nort. No, wait. Everybody loves Elrond. <laughs> But but kids love Nort. Nort deserves the love. He does. He does. He, he does. does. Actually, you know, I was joking about him being cousins with Scooby-Doo, but I understand now, I haven't read this, but I understand that he's actually a cousin of Larflees. I believe that was revealed in the Justice League 2000, uh, 3000, because mm. far, far in the future, they meet Larflees, and I think Nort is there as well, if I remember correctly, because, I mean, come on, it's Giffen and Demetrius. They're not going to... And that book was full of Justice League International characters. They weren't going to leave that guy out. Wow, he's long-lived for a dog-like character. Yeah, well, you know, seven years for every one of ours. So I think it actually goes the other way around. But that's okay. Yeah, well. <laughs> it's an art. <laughs> you just accept it and move on. That's right. <laughs> I understand in the, uh, I can't believe it's not Justice League. There was actually an alternate reality Nort that was like this big giant. You know what? I haven't read it since it first came out. Uh, I've had the opportunity to reread it, but I held off because I want to kind of do it with the podcast. and So I don't remember. Now, there's definitely I, I an alternate reality. Again. Uh, where they go to like a, it's almost like a parallel world, and I remember they going to that. And maybe that, maybe that's what Nort was in that world. I don't know, folks. Don't write in. Don't tell me. I don't want to know because I'm. I'll get there in a few years, and I want to re-enjoy don't, that. Don't spoil it for him. There you go. No spoilers. Well, thank you for that uh, character spotlight on Nort. That's a lot of fun. Love that guy. And for those of you that don't like Nort, Rob Kelly, I'm looking at you. You really got to get over it because he's a fun character. You got to take it in the spirit it's intended and just enjoy it. You know, it's all right, Rob. Uh, you can dislike Nort all you want. We'll just be tolerant of your intolerance. <laughs> Makes us the better people. <laughs> we always take the high road, sir. Exactly, exactly. 
Well, with that out of the way, sir, it is time for the big moment, what everyone's been waiting for, especially with the level of absurdity in this issue. It's time for... Cue music. Pwahaha Award. This is where we nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both Zoom and myself are going to pick a moment, and one of them will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. So, Zoom, what do you got? What else could it be? But, gosh, I didn't know Power Rings could sigh. That is a very good moment. It absolutely is. But you say, what else could it be? I'll tell you what else it could be. It could be page two, the omniscient narrator, actually, for me. So we we get this whole setting where, you know, it's all the Galactus sort of like pressure and, and all this stuff, you know, the ship is a the size of a small planet, the hungry planet, an evil planet. But what difference can this make to you, dear reader, when this gargantuan vessel hovers on the edge of a solar system light years from Earth? Well, let's be honest. Do you think we'd be wasting our time and adjectives here if the inhabitants of this world weren't going to be making lots of trouble for the Justice League International? Of course not. For me, that blew me away. Because, again, that told me that this comic has gone from having, you know, clever dialogue to a level of absurdity where the omniscient narrator has even gone into, uh, you know, uh, breaking the fourth wall. That cracked me up. I love that moment. I especially like the use of the the logo yes. for Justice League International interspersed in that too. Yes, it it just seemed to it just seemed to seal the deal on that joke. This is the point where we got to fight it out, buddy. Yeah, I know, and I'm taking your side all of a sudden. What happened there? Well, it's because it's the right answer. Because uh. I love Norton all, I really do. But we've seen a lot of the North silliness before. This is the first time that we've delved into this level of absurdity, as the word I keep seem, seeming to come to. But this level of just fourth wall breaking, things like that. I I think this is the one, man. And I lose this argument a lot so i don't feel like losing tonight <laughs> well let's let's go back to barda saying that she uh, still had to put mayonnaise in the lasagna then see now that's pretty funny it is pretty darn funny but nowhere oh, near it doesn't hold it doesn't hold a candle to the sighing power ring for it, sure it, it doesn't hold a candle to the omniscient narrator either that is true that is true why am i leaning towards the omniscient narrator because i'm the boss my finger's hovering over the hang-up button on skype oh <laughs> well then in that case <laughs> Using his careful deliberation powers, Professor Zoom decides to side with Shag. Excellent choice. Very good. That that was completely democratic. Absolutely fair. I think that's appropriate. So there we go, folks. So congratulations to the omniscient narrator. You have won the coveted Bwahaha Award. It is as tangible as, well, quite frankly, it's as tangible as you are, omniscient narrator. (laughs) Enjoy your award. Wear it with pride. Oof. All right. Just when you think you couldn't get more when you already had omniscience. Now it's omniscience plus one. Perfect. I love it. Oh, hang on a second. I'm getting a text message. What? It's from Elron. That's weird. It says, pardon the intrusion, O garrulous one. Methinks it would behoove me to request a brief respite from Mr. Yukonori? Not per se to malinger, but I must requisition him forthwith for his impending appearance on your holiest of television networks, QVC. Uh. Mr. Yukonori is scheduled to promote his artistic wares in the most honored tradition of barter. His art in exchange for your earthly pieces of little green paper. Shop or die. Glorious. What? First of all, how did Elrond even get my number? But seriously, Zoom? You're getting into the spirit of this issue with by appearing on QVC? Oh, was that tonight? Oh, what, what, which embassy are we in again? Oh, never mind. I'll just use the teleporter tubes. Enjoy talking out loud to yourself, sir. Well, folks, I guess we'll Zoom is QVCing it. Uh, is that even a verb? I don't know. Anyway, while he's doing that, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called... Justice Log. Thank you. 
right, up first, a little bit of news. Folks, I have been telling you for months now, so if you haven't been paying attention, it's not my fault. If you haven't ordered your JLI Omnibus yet, there is still time. In fact, if you go out to Amazon right now, the time of this recording, you can save 45% if you pre-order the JLI Omnibus. So get out there, get your copy, folks. Don't miss this opportunity. Next is just a little bit of personal news. Got a chance to hang out with our buddy Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist recently. We caught up over lunch, had some barbecue, had some good comic talk. It was a lot of fun, and we were plotting his appearance on an upcoming episode of this show. As I said earlier, please get out on the social medias and get involved. Use our hashtag, which is pound FW Podcasts, or you can tag us on Twitter, it's JLI Podcast. On Facebook, it's Justice League International, Blahaha Podcast. And really, again, it's all about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. And as I go through this feedback, you're going to see it's a pretty darn big community already, and I need everyone to be part of it and get involved. And remember, if you're outside of the United States and you're leaving feedback, let me know. We'll assign you to the appropriate embassy. And it's good to know, too, because if you're international, we have to filter iTunes properly to see your reviews. Speaking of which, let's get to those iTunes reviews. Now, these iTunes reviews are so very important, folks. It really helps raise the profile of the show. And there is folks finding this show every month. We are bringing in lots of new people, and these reviews are part of the way that people find us. So, as my thank you to you, for those of you who leave your iTunes reviews, I'm going to read your entire review on the air. First iTunes review comes from Dan Schwab, and his subject line was, I can't be blue because this podcast is gold. Ugh, that's a good one. Dan goes on to say, I love the podcast and reminiscing about my favorite incarnation of the league. I've been listening to Shag since the first Bwahaha. This JLI podcast was something older fans like me didn't know we needed until it was there. It's also steered me towards other titles, both new and old. Entertaining and functional. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. I appreciate that. Then we got a review from Paul K3. I, I don't know that that's his real name. I hope it's really Paul Kirk the Manhunter, but I'm thinking it might not be. Anyway, a yeah, review titled was Shagtastic. Paul says, been listening to the Firewater podcast for close to a year, but I have to say the JLI podcast is my favorite one. Sorry it's taken this long to post for my review. The guests are always great, and I guess Shag is okay. Uh, who am I kidding? Shag is a great host and his enthusiasm for the material has me enjoying rereading the issues before I listen to the podcast. These are some great comics and it's a fun way to experience them again. Thanks. Keep up the great work. I appreciate that, Paul. Paul certainly knows how to stroke my ego. Smart move, young man. Very smart move. Then we heard from my buddy, J. David Weeder, who's done a bunch of podcasts, including one of my favorites, Dave's Daredevil Podcast. He's also a past guest of this show. Dave writes, Blackmail works. Since Shag has some compromising photos, I want to take a moment to praise the show. Though, Shag's subtle motivation isn't necessary since I love the show. This was a great comic, and it's shown lots of love, and deservedly so. This is a truly fun and slickly produced show, and has become a must-listen for me. All right, our last iTunes review comes from... Oh, it's from Professor Zoom Yukinori, our guest on this episode. Huh, well, well, he's off QVCing. Let's see what he has to say. His subject line is simply put. All right, he goes on to say, This splendiferous podcast is a phenomenal panoply of a fervent penchant for 1980s nostalgia and an ebullient predilection for the comic book characters, as well as their creators and their craft. Oh my gosh. He, oh, this is his revenge. I, he knows I can't pronounce things. So for me picking on him, this is what he's doing to me. Oh, my gosh. All right, here we go. I'm going to keep going. Oh, forgive me. Remember, my pronunciation is crappy. So, all right. Each episode is a tour de force of amnesis par excellence, a merriment of Brobdignian proportions that is astonishingly permeated with the preponderance of sagacious insights. And even on the sporadic yet fleeting occasions of commiseration on disparaged absurdities or inane palavir, every podcast undergoes such experiences now and then, this program maintains a constant state of unadulterated 
anosis in my mind for the duration. Because the eminent Mr. Matthews graciously recites all iTunes reviews in their entirety as an expression of his immeasurable gratitude, it must be promulgated that the very savvy and uproarious Mr. Matthews and his perspicious, I have no idea, visitants comport a bona fide syncophancy for the material amidst their boisterous Batteranage. Oh my gosh, Zoom, I'm going to kill you. This ingenious auditory exhibition is sporadically accentuated with commensurate quantities of piquant persiflage and rousing repartee, and intermittently with fittingly banal frivolity, immersed in a presentation that is theatrical, yet bears no resemblance to an overture of spurious, ostentatious, or meretricious modelism associated with other fanboy podcasts. Oh my gosh. I am never going to forgive him for this. And he told me off air, he said, when I read his review, I'm not allowed to read it in advance or do any prep. So this is what you got. That was real and raw. Oh, Zoom. <laughs> when you get back, buddy. <laughs> All right. That is the end of our iTunes reviews. And again, thanks to everyone who submitted an iTunes review. Thank you to everyone who submitted an iTunes review. And for those of you who have not yet submitted an iTunes review, I'm coming to your house and I'm going to beat you up. Jay and Silent Bob style. I'm just saying, think twice next time the doorbell rings. All right, now that we have that out of the way, folks. All right, now we're going to be pulling comments from our website, uh, email, social media, things like that. Lots and lots and lots and lots of feedback. You guys really had a lot to say about Justice League International number 13 and Suicide Squad number 13, which is fantastic. So I'm just going to be cherry-picking, taking bits and pieces of what you guys wrote. So here we go. Jose Rivera wrote, Loved the episode. I remember when I was collecting this series that I had to get the Suicide Squad issues to finish the story. I tried to put myself in the mindset of when these came out. You have two comics that spun out of Legends and two teams that were very much a product of the post-crisis era of comics that took familiar concepts and added a modern 1980s flavor to them. Then we heard our buddy Rob Williams, who does the Generation X-Wing podcast. He says, As always, I'm really enjoying the JLI show. One of the highlights of the month. Super nostalgic. Thanks, Rob. Then I heard from Aaron Head Moss, uh, who calls himself the Creeper. Now, of course, Aaron is from the Headcast Network, the Task Force X podcast, and many, many more. And thankfully, I can say he's a past guest of this show. Aaron says, I must say, another great episode, Shag. And what a great, knowledgeable guest. Had a blast being on the show. Looking forward to seeing you again when you show up in court as the prosecution's witness. <laughs> Thanks, Aaron. Appreciate it, buddy. Then heard from Michelle Fife, comics professional and writer and artist of Copra and past guest of this show. I, I had posed the question, was the JLI Suicide Squad an effective crossover? He goes, hey, it worked on me. I read the squad issues first. I was eight. And on the strength of that story alone, I became a fan of both the squad and the JLI. Safe to say this sparked an unhealthy obsession with the comics that continues to this day. And if you read his Copra book, you'll you'll absolutely know what he's talking about. He also says regarding Steve Lealoha on the upcoming JLI issues, I always liked his stuff and never minded his fill-ins. But now that I think about it, I can't help but think that the mark was off a little. Who else would have been a good fit? Hmm. Two more issues of Giffen would have been sweet, but he was slammed drawing Video Jack. <laughs> I just this shag. Not many times has that sentence ever been written. Anyway, uh, Michelle goes on to say two possible replacements that were on hell for speed dial, but were unfortunately deep in their own respective projects were Kyle Baker and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. Hell, Kevin Nolan wasn't locked in anything major. Neither was Ty Templeton. All good suggestions, Michelle. No doubt about it, buddy. Then we heard from Ryan Daly from the Firewater Podcast Network, where he does a number of shows, including Batman Nightcast, and Ryan's a past guest of the show and a new father. Ryan wrote in to say uh, about whether it's an effective crossover. He wrote, Hell, it was effective even before I read it. I've been reading Justice League International, and when it came to these issues, I decided I'd figure out who the Suicide Squad was before reading the crossover. I binged the first year of Suicide Squad issues and discovered how much I love that series and Ostringer's work with the characters. Very cool. So it sounds like this crossover was a resounding success. 
Then we heard from our buddy Paul Hicks, who does the Waiting for Doom podcast, and Paul is from our Australian embassy. He goes, Were some of those jokes made in this episode because I'm an Australian? And, uh... <laughs> David Ace Gutierrez, who's the executive producer of Pop Dylan, said, The man from Florida making fun of a place? That takes some balls. <laughs> Sorry, Paul. Yes, you were uh, the butt of many jokes last episode. We apologize. Then we heard from our buddy Gord Tolton from the Canadian embassy. Gord says, Great show. I hope Aaron's arm hasn't been blown off for all he revealed. <laughs> Run, Aaron, run. Then we heard from J. David Weeder again. He goes, has anyone compared the JLI to the sitcom Scrubs? I think the comparison is valid. Funny as hell, but we'll have moments that suck you square in the feels. And then he gave a, a list of comparisons. He said, Booster and Beetle are Turk and JD. Fire and Ice are basically Carla and Elliot. Guy is Dr. Cox. And Martian Manhunter is Dr. Kelso. Nort is the janitor. It all fits. Ryan Daly took a little bit of an argument with him. He said, Batman is actually Cox and Guy is the Todd. So and there was a bunch of discussion about that on Facebook. Thank you, Dave. Then we heard from Siskoid from our Canadian Embassy. He's also part of the Firewater Podcast Network. And uh, just to name a couple of his shows, Fire and Water Team-Up and Kung Fu Fridays. He also does Siskoid's blog at Geekery. Siskoid says, I love how some of the fighting pairs just hid in the corner and talked instead. And to your question about Duchess, it wasn't yet said outright, but always had been heavily implied. He's referring to how Duchess was secretly uh, Lashina. Sorry for the spoilers. And Siskoid says, I knew from her first appearance and any other identity would have been a surprise, I think. Now, Aaron stepped in to give a little more information, and he says, But it gets confusing on what she remembers, and when in this episode she seems to freak out like she knew Scott, but couldn't remember him from where. Like I think Shag said, if she was faking, it would have been smarter just to keep quiet, as Scott didn't seem to recognize her. But in Suicide Squad, a few months later, it was clear that Amanda Waller knows who she is, and it's equally clear that Duchess also knows who she is, and is playing with a wall. And uh, Aaron goes on to say, These are the issues he's currently covering in his Task Force X podcast. Then Tim Price chimed in on this subject. He goes, Duchess's reaction to Scott only makes sense if she has some amnesia. One thing to consider, was she completely amnesiac? She saw Scott and her memory started returning, making her blurt out, why do I know you? And her memory finishes returning? So it's not an absolute of having or faking memory loss, but starting out with memory loss and seeing Mr. Miracle in costume was the trigger to bring the restoration process. Hmm. You know, you could very well be right, Tim. They were from Rob Kelly, who's also part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does a billion shows, and just to name one, he's currently doing a miniseries within the Film and Water Podcast called Turn It Off with Tracy, which is absolutely wonderful. Rob's also responsible for the Aquaman Shrine, and uh, he's my hetero life partner. So uh, we had made some different jokes on the last episode with Aaron, and Aaron and Rob writes, responding to a comment Aaron made on the show, Aaron, please send me $50. <sighs> Ouch. All right, folks, be careful what you say on this show. It can come back to bite you. Then we heard from our buddy Chris Franklin from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does a bunch of shows, including Batman Nightcast and the Supermates Podcast, where they just recently did a Starman Chronicles episode going through the James Robinson series. Oh, love it so much. Now, Chris is also a passive guest from this show. Chris writes, I'm glad you're doing the show concurrently with Nightcast, Shag. You're a few months ahead of us, but it's interesting to see that Batman is being portrayed as the obsessive control freak in the JLI. We haven't really seen it yet in the Batman detective in our coverage. In fact, I remember being kind of surprised how torn up Batman was about the squad and these issues. It does jive with Mike W. Barr's portrayal of Batman and Batman and the Outsiders, so I think that title's portrayal was far more influential on the post-crisis Batman than most give it credit for. Hmm, interesting. All right. Heard from our buddy Bradley Null. He goes, This crossover made me a Justice League guy, as opposed to a Suicide Squad guy. There was much debate as to which was better. Uh, I've heard many stories about Bradley Null's old days of comic fandom, which some even resulted in fistfights, if I remember right. <laughs> 
Uh, heard again from Dan Schwab. He wrote in to say, I've been digging the podcast for the past year. Living in Key West, there's some love for comics amongst the locals, but usually it's more mainstream fare. So it's where I get to geek out about Giffen, DiMatteis, McGuire, and Lappin. And I will go on extensively about LaPan's tight lettering if anyone wants to hear it. Huh, I'd be interested, Dan. Let us know. So Dan goes on to say, as a cartoonist, McGuire influenced me to put more expression into my characters and make them emote and look like they were saying the words they were saying instead of dialogue with gaping maw. I'm nowhere near as good as McGuire, but he influenced what skills I do have. JLI is and shall always be my favorite. I'm still noodling with the idea of a beetle and booster being my first tattoo. Whoa! Well, that would be incredible, Dan. If you get it, you got to take pictures and send it to us. He wraps up with, thanks so much for the podcast and keeping me updated on other publications and podcasts. You're doing the Lord's work, the Maxwell Lord's work here. <laughs> and he, he sent us this photo of just a giant stack of JLI comics he had. Oh, it was awesome. Thanks for writing in, Dan. Then we're from Brian Hughes, who does the Third Degree Burn podcast, as well as Fear the Walking Dead cast over on the Two True Freaks Network. He writes in and say, Hey, Shag, love the show, but really miss McGuire's work in it. In reference to Lealoha's work, I think it was his trying to adhere to Giffen's panel breakdowns that hurt his pencils, though that's just an opinion. Then he mentions Metron. A couple of episodes ago, we were talking about Metron. We thought he looked like somebody. We couldn't place it. So he goes, I think McGuire was using Jonathan Harris, the infamous Dr. Smith from Lost in Space, as his character model for Metron. I got a Dr. Smith vibe from him and even heard Harris's voice when Metron spoke. It's kind of like his Cylon character back in the 70s in Battlestar Galactica. That is very interesting observation, Brian. I'm going to have to go back and look at that and see what I think. Then we hear from my buddy Tim Price. He wrote in a dissertation. Well, actually, he wrote a couple different dissertations, which I really appreciate. Thank you. So I went ahead and printed those out and uh, it gave me something to line the cat litter box with. So perfect. All right. So Tim wrote in to say, I heard Shag say I was right twice. So great episode. Yeah, Tim, totally don't get used to that. He says, seriously, this was a Reese's Cup of crossovers. Two very different teams that made a great story together. And then he goes on to say, when I started rereading JLI to follow along with this podcast, I also started rereading the same issues of Suicide Squad. Since both series started after Legends, it's a fun way to relive those years of collecting. How did two such different team books become the major hits of DC at the time? Interesting times. And then jumping down here to, what is this, page 47, he says, um, now I do have one nitpick about the story. In JLI, when the squad is invading the prison, they take out a lot of guards. Did they kill them? Giffen's art leaves that very vague. If so, how can the League justify letting the Suicide Squad go? These are Soviet soldiers doing their job, and that would be outright murder, not self-defense. If they're just knocking people out, then I can go along with the League, especially Jean going along with the plan. But if they're dead, then I'm on Batman's side. Thoughts? Very interesting. So Aaron uh, chimed in, because you know he's our Suicide Squad expert. He says, as far as the guards go, with Flag in charge, I'd like to say they were just knocked out. But at the top of page 18, it looks like blood oozing over the ledge. So that would say they might have been some extra force used. My no-prize answer for why the JLI let the squad go was that the League was already inside when the squad did this, and when they went out, they went a different way so they didn't see the bodies. Otherwise, I agree, the JLI would have and should have done something about the trail of bodies. Ah, all right, I like that no-prize. Well done, Aaron. And great question, Tim. Then Tim goes on, uh, the Amanda versus Max scenes were so good. Glad Shag and Aaron appreciated them just as much. The, that matchup was just as important as any of the other versus pairings in this issue. Leader versus leader. But using their strengths. Although in its way, this was as brutal as Flag versus Batman. Max's foot, ouch! Speaking of Flag versus Bats, yes. 
Flag did get a little boost, but I thought the Secret Origins annual featuring the Suicide Squad, it showed Flag going one-on-one with a brainwashed bronze tiger and holding his own. That could set a precedent that Flag's combat skills are way up there. I need to dig that up. Then we heard from our buddy Dead Robin from the Pulp to Pixel podcast network, including one of my favorite shows, Secret Wars and Beyond. He says, great episode. Weirdly, in my broken memory headcanon, Vixen had joined the squad much later, so I forgot about her reunion with Jean. It totally hit me the first time I read it. I was JLA Detroit for life, so seeing Vixen and Jean share the weight of that loss was a powerful emotional surprise from a usually comical book. Absolutely, Sean. I mean, it gets you in all the feels. No doubt about that. Then we heard from SDF7. Now, I'm not sure if that's on his birth certificate, but I know it's a Robotech reference. I figured that much out. Anyway, SDF7 writes in to say, Great episode as usual. One question, though. Wasn't Firestorm Annual number 5 before this? I was a little surprised Shag especially didn't mention it even in passing. Still one of my favorite JLI squad fights with Parasite, Firestorm, and Firehawk thrown in as wild cards. You know... You make a great point there. Um, now, Firestorm Annual Number 5 came out uh, about six months before these issues of JLI and Suicide Squad. But you're right. That was a previous meeting of the JLI and the Suicide Squad in a fighting situation. So it would have made a lot of sense to have some sort of reference in there, especially since Ostrander wrote both. Hmm. And obviously, it slipped both Aaron and I's minds, and uh, we screwed up and didn't cover it. So good catch. Thank you, SDF7. Again, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's your real name. Then heard from Dishwasher Danny. says, This was a very enjoyable show. Loved it top to bottom. Your comments about the in-house ads reminds me how much I love the Crimson Avenger and reading that miniseries. Awesome. Glad you enjoyed it, Danny. Then we heard from our buddy Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog, who's also in the Scottish Embassy. Martin wrote in, great episode as ever. I was reading both books at the time and enjoyed seeing the teams come together hugely. Oh, this is Picky Shag, and you probably knew and were just going for a gag, but when you said the JLI editor Andy Helfer would have no problems getting an ad for the Shadow in there, the ads were organized as blocks throughout the entire line. So it would have been in all the books that month. Huh, that's a good point, Martin. That makes a, that makes sense. I I kind of thought they had some flexibility because like there used to be an ad for Firestorm running issue 65 that only appeared in a couple of comics and they were all Denny O'Neill comics. But eh, I could be wrong. It does happen from time to time, about as often as that uh, solar eclipse we're about to have. Then we heard from our buddy Jimmy McGlinchey at the Irish Embassy. He says, Irish Embassy here. Sorry for the delay in replying. I've been dealing with the exterminators about the Aaron Moss infestation that has been found in all the embassies. Please, please, people, if you see an Aaron Moss nibbling Oreos in the embassy, do not approach him. The last person who did this was Guy Gardner, who chased him under the table, banged his head, and is now currently singing the back catalog of James Blunt to anyone who would listen. Thank you, Jimmy. I sincerely appreciate you going along with my goofy gags every month. Jimmy goes on to say, I read these stories first in the UK reprints that Martin Gray was involved in. It was my first exposure to the squad. Luckily, the UK magazine gave a handy text piece outlining who was who in the squad. And he says, I was surprised there was so little discussion on the most likely to be killed off in Suicide Squad character of Javelin. Or as Booster pointed out in the story, someone who had an impeccable dress sense like him. Guess they wanted to save Javelin's death for a bigger story, like War of the Gods. <laughs> I did pick up Javelin's first appearance in Green Lantern and was amazed he was actually able to go toe-to-toe with Hal. Yeah, we didn't really spend much time on Javelin. He has always been a what kind of character for me. So, yeah, I think I gave him a hard time when we did the Who's Who entry in the Who's Who podcast as well. Then we heard from our buddy Chris Lewis at the UK Embassy. He was kind enough to uh, share a tweet with us, which had the cover art process by Fabio Moon for Jeff Lemire and uh, Dean Ormston's comic uh, Black Hammer from Dark Horse Comics. They had a special cover available at the San Diego Comic-Con, and it was done in the uh, Kevin McGuire JLI number one kind of pose, which was really cool. Then we heard from our buddy Diablo Frank from the Rolled Spine Podcast Network. He does a 
ton of shows. But just to name a couple, uh, Diana Prince, Wonder Woman podcast, and the Marvel Superheroes podcast. And uh, Frank is a past guest on this show. Frank says, I think Steve Lealoha's covers were among the weakest of the Giffen Demetrius run. Hey, I said that too. That's kind of terrifying that Frank and I are thinking the same thing. Anyway, Frank goes on to say, I just glaze over the JLI 13 one, so it's odd that I like the Suicide Squad variation so much better. In fact, I thought it was by Luke McDonald instead. The back of the JLI versus a bunch of minor leaguers doesn't work as well as the squad with its backs to the wall against oncoming leaguers. And then uh, he goes on to talk about the colors. He says, I miss flats. Those reproduced pages look great with the simple but effective art and the colors that don't reek of desperation to compete with CGI or video game pixels. I totally agree, Frank. I talked about it a lot on the earlier episodes of this show on how I just love how all the colors are flat. There's not all those variations in colors. It just looks great. Then we heard from Boston Moss. He says, I'm several months behind on a couple of these podcasts. I just had a chance to finish your Demetrius interview. Thanks. That was probably one of your best ones yet. Thanks, Boston. He says, I may be in the minority, but I didn't think this was one of the most effective crossovers. Yes, I was reading both titles, and the versus matchups were handled beautifully, but I didn't think the slapstick style fit well with the squad. And even though McDonald's art is darker, I like his penciling over Giffen's in this era. I like Giffen's earlier work with the Legion, but to me, his later stuff just seems sloppy and rushed. And he says, regarding Flag's martial prowess, I think the Mayfair stats handled that quite well. Flag's martial artist skill wasn't at the Batman or, or Bronze Tiger level, but it shows what a couple levels of the Mind Over Matter power could do. Huh. Very interesting, Boston. And uh, now, Siskoid, uh, I put that to you to double-check all that and let me know what you think. Then we're from our buddy Michael Bailey from the Views from the Podcast Network, which has lots of shows, including the Overlooked Dark Knight podcast. It all comes back to Superman and many others. And Michael's also a past guest of this show. He says, thanks to the JLI podcast, I now have a vivid image of Tom Zoller holding a Pepsi, bursting into Rob Kelly's dorm room, and saying they need to get to the Regal Beagle right away. <laughs> On several episodes back, I was talking about how Tom Zoller was basically Larry to uh, Rob Kelly's Jack Tripper. Anyway, Rob and Tom actually on Facebook both confirmed this to be true, and this happened. And uh, I then said, in this scenario, I'd like to be Chrissy, please. <laughs> then uh, a couple rapid-fire comments here. We hear from Joe Tonello. Uh, he's been posting over on Facebook. He says, love the podcast. And he's been posting these pics of him in his Blue Beetle costume. He's got some cosplay going. And he even recreated the Kahui 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 look at the beach, where it's just him at the beach with just the mask on and a bathing suit. It's hysterical. Thank you, Joe, for sharing this with us. Then we're from Oscar O'Alde, who says uh, he was reading the JLI issues in preparation for this episode. Awesome, Oscar. Then Justin Suarez said JLI number 10 is the best. Of course, uh, Michelle Fife is not going to argue that one with you, buddy. And Justin Steiner says he just got to the episode number 10 with Michelle Fife and loved the conversation. Maybe he'll catch up by the end of the year. I hope so, Justin. Then DC Legacy Filmcast said listen to the first two episodes. Great show so far. Nice to relive the amazing JLI art. Then we got a little bit of early feedback on this issue, JLI number 14, that we're covering today. Drew Bear says, I recall looking inside this issue and thinking, well, McGuire's definitely not here anymore. But for me, this was an issue where JLI went to the next level of goofiness, which some people weren't into. But I absolutely loved. Hmm. Alright, thanks Drew. Then Tayon Alexander says, this was one of my favorite issues, back when things were fun. Then a quick Double Stuff Award. Uh, if you're not familiar, Double Stuff Award is given out when someone goes above and beyond to either promote the podcast, or just promote the JLI, or just frankly does something nice. And in this case, my buddy Keechee Baker, he may me a postcard recently, wishing me uh, well on my recent move. Thank you. It was very stressful. The postcard cheered me up. And the postcard, actually the front side, was the cover to JLI number one. So thanks, Keith. Enjoy your Double Stuff Award. All right. This is the part where I get to thank so many people. 
Folks, these are the people that shared the JLI podcast on their own social media timeline, Facebook, Twitter. That means they actually promoted the show for us. And uh, I know it's a big, long list of names. I say this every month. However, these folks showed their support and promoted the show. Guys, it's so important that we recognize these guys. And our community is growing so fast. This time out, we're looking over well over 90 names of people who helped promote last episode. All right, strap in. My thanks go out to Too Old, Too New podcast. Aaron Head Moss. Uh, also, Aaron promoted us on lots of his other social media for the Head Speaks Network, G.I. Joe, a Real American Headcast, Starman, Manhunter, Adventure Hour, and the Task Force X Podcast. Thanks also to Adam Ackerman, Al Gerding, Bat Shapirak, Bill Beer, Brad Dade, Brian Hughes, Buck Rollette, Callum Nauer, Cash Flag, Charlton Hero, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Christopher J. Warden, Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee and Comics, Comic Book Covers from Different Countries, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Craig 101, Dallas Gibson, Daniel Butnick, David Byer Jr., David Navarrete, David Vanderberg, DC in the 80s, our buddy Mark Belkin, DC Legacy Films, Diablo Frank, Rolled Spine Podcast, Dr. Ange, LTO Gus, Fahim, Frederico Hernandez, Geek Brain Popcast, Generation X-Wing Podcast, Guy Hatu, J. David Weeder, Jack Dower, Jacob Edwards, Jake and Tom Conker, Jared West, Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, Jason Mulliken, Jeff Douglas Messer, Jeffrey Brown, Jeremiah Parker, Jose Rivera, Justice's First Dawn, Justin Steiner, Kichi Baker, Cord Industries, Laurel Mountain Flower, Luke Dobb, Mark Lax, Marcus Soroyas, Martin Coger, Matt Mayer Lowry, Matthew Cody, Max Romero, and It's Plastic Man, Michael O'Brien, Michelle Fife, Pat Sampson, Longbox Crusade, Paul Hicks, Waiting for Doom, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Rad Adventures, Warlord Worlds, Randy Caldwell, Mr. Perturbed, Rich Grimmel, Rob Kelly, also with his other social media, Film and Water Podcast, The Aquaman Shrine, Hostess Ads, Superman Movie Minute. That's a lot. Also, Rod Pruitt, Ryan Daly, Scott Hutchins, Sean, who's Sergey Bomba, Sean AZ, Siskoid, Talk It Out Podcast, Terrence Castongue, The Brocast Podcast, Tim Price, Tim Rooney, Willie Yarbrough, and Zoom Yukonori. Hey, look at that. Ended on him. All right. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI podcast, folks. Your feedback is such a critical part of this show, and this community of JLI fans we're building together is fan-damn-tastic. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It's probably Aaron Head Moss's fault. Just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you on the next episode. Please keep those cards and letters coming. Best way to reach us is on our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments there, and that's where most of the interaction is going on. Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter, JLI. Podcast, and you can email us at jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Aaron Head Moss for helping me cover JLI number 13 and Suicide Squad number 13. And thanks to you, listeners, for such a great collection of feedback from that episode. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we'll see if Zoom got rich over on QVC. Ever read uh, a Superman comic? Not in the last few hours. Oh, I was just checking, right? Just checking. Hey everyone, my name is Michael Bailey, and I have been a fan of Superman for as long as I can remember. In 1987, I started collecting the Superman comics as a going concern, which led me down a long and winding comic book filled path to 2007 when I first started podcasting. Well, it's 2017. And because it's been 10 years since I started podcasting, and 30 years since I started reading Superman full-time, I thought it might be fun to start a new show called It All Comes Back to Superman. It All Comes Back to Superman will be my monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith. 
where I will pick out something about the Man of Steel and discuss it. Sometimes I'll be alone. Sometimes I'll have a guest. No matter how many people get involved, Superman will be the focus. It all comes back to Superman as part of the Fortress of Bailey Tube podcasting network. New episodes will drop on the 28th of every month. This show and all of the other programs that are part of the Fortress of Bailey Tube podcasting network can be found at www.fortressofbaileytude.com. Coming to media players everywhere in 2017 from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beginning with the origin of his comic book fandom and ending with the destruction of the universe. Professor Zoom Yukinori leads a monthly expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. While promising unique celebrity guest perspectives in an ambitious attempt to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts. Thrill to the imagination. Bask in the brilliance. Experience the wonder of... The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Discover how compressed storytelling can broaden one's mind. Listen for it wherever Fire and Water Podcast Network podcasts are networking. folks we're back from break and yep looks like zoom is back too lovely thank you so much for that torturous itunes review zoom oh my gosh really playing up to my enunciation strengths thank you there pal well, I'm glad you enjoyed it, sir. So, how did your QVC experience go? Well, I thought it was a resounding success. I had over 900 art commission orders to fulfill, wow. but but that was apparently not good enough for Quebec. Uh, oh, I'm sorry, QVC. Uh, when <laughs> when they found out that 900 actually didn't mean 900,000, but oh well, I've got I've got enough to keep my right arm busy for the rest of the millennium. <laughs> They do have pretty high standards over there, QVC, I hear. Mm, yes, yes, exactly. you got to sell like 10,000 units or whatever. In your... Well, folks, we're getting towards the end of the show here, so this is the part where I have to say thanks to Zoom for appearing on this episode of the show. I don't really mean it, not even remotely, after what just happened, but it's in the script, so I have to say it. Zoom, why don't you please tell these nice people at home, I assume they're nice, I don't really know that they are, but it's a safe assumption, where can they find you on the internets? Well, of course, sir. Thank you. I have created a blog site called Omelette au Fromage, which can be found at zoom-yukinori.blogspot.com. I designed the blog to help people who don't know me to get to know me, and to help people who do know me to get to know me a bit better. <laughs> I also make regular artistic contributions to The Line It Is Drawn, which is a weekly sketch challenge feature on the comic book resources website at cbr.com. And finally, I have been honored to have a few FW Presents podcasts available on the fireandwaterpodcast.com, one of which is uh, on the amazing world of DC Comics, and the other is a fan panel discussion on Batman the Animated Series. And I am also hard at work on my first season of my very own podcast, The Done in One Wonders 
podcast, Wonder Show, which will spotlight my favorite Dun & One comic book stories. And it should debut in late August to early September on the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Now, given that the time of this release of this episode is going to be mid to late August, you should be pretty pretty close to coming out there. Oh, wonderful. Then I guess it'll be any day now. <laughs> now, I'm looking forward to when I get to guest appear on there and we start talking about Samantha Fox. Ah, that would be wonderful. In fact, you know, eventually Samantha Fox will probably become Captain Britain or something in the comics. And then I have that in <laughs> to get to get Zoom Love Sam on the on the network. I was promised a guest appearance on that show. Yes, you are. Indeed. <laughs> now, before I take my leave, I must say thank you for having me on the podcast. It was indeed being my pleasure here to be, sir. <laughs> Well, all jokes aside, we really did enjoy you on the show. Thank you so much, Zoom, for being here and raising the level of class after Aaron you know, stunk off the joint last episode. So, folks, <laughs> that's going to do it for Justice League International number 14. Come back next month when we cover Justice League International number 15, and we'll have another guest to cover the issue with me. Who will it be? Sorry, folks. For the next month, you'll just have to cry yourself to sleep wondering. I know, I know. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Zoom. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make make something something of of it? Thanks for listening, everybody. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Zoom. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? Is there something of which you want to make from this? Don't do that.